Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So over the last, I don't know, month or so, um, a couple of things have happened culturally, I guess, that, that have brought up a lot of memories about Iraq, uh, at least for me and, and I think for a lot of people. One of them, I, I mean, I went and saw American Sniper. Uh, and right around the same time that I was seeing American Sniper, uh, Brian Williams got in trouble for essentially lying about something that had happened to him in Iraq. And uh, that made me, that prompted me to write a newspaper column, which also excited a lot of responses. But while I was working on the newspaper column, I, I found this kind of amazing and disturbing uh, poll that uh, was conducted last year that said that um, uh, 51% of people, I think it was 51% of people, said that they had opposed the war in Iraq. Not that they opposed it now or that they thought it wasn't a good idea, but they, at the time they opposed it. And uh, it was something like, I don't know, 30 or so, 30 percent or so said that uh, they remembered supporting it. Um, and, of course, if, if you know anything about that time and the polling of, uh, at that time, 72 percent of Americans supported the war in Iraq. So it just all of this kind of added up in my mind to, A, we don't really know how to talk about Iraq. We don't know how to look at Iraq. We tend to break it off into little tiny pieces because it's so big. The, the story of our involvement in Iraq, in Iraq is so big. Uh, and, and it stretches out across so many years. We just we don't know how to talk about it. And not only that, but we don't even know how to remember it. We don't even know how to remember our own attitudes at the time this nation decided kind of collectively to go into Iraq. So the other really interesting kind of cultural product recently, and it doesn't addition to American Sniper. I mean, there have been sort of two things that have got people back in that time thinking about that time, but maybe in very different ways. The other one is Redeployment, a, a book by Phil Cly. Uh, it's a, a collection of short stories. Uh, sometimes they seem uh, like Tim O'Brien stories, and sometimes they seem like Graham Greene stories. But what they really are is the product, are the product of a really unique writing voice, a, a voice that stays in your head uh, if you're dumb enough to read one of these stories before you go to bed, you just dream them all night. Uh, so anyway, he's here with us now. In a little while, uh, Frank Rich will join us, uh, somebody who uh, was one of the early voices trying to talk the United States out of going into Iraq and somebody who's also really stayed with the story among American stateside journalists. Obviously, there are some wonderful journalists, journalists like Dexter Filkins, people like that who went there. Uh, among stateside journalists, I think Frank Rich has said some really interesting things about this. I wanted us to have a conversation, maybe kind of about how, how, how to remember and how to talk about all this. So, Phil Cly, first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Um, in one of my favorite stories in this book is called, and it's one of the Graham Greene stories. It's called <laughs> "Money as a Weapon System," uh, and so there's a scene, and we we were meeting. First of all, this one takes place later than a lot of the other stories. Uh, it takes place, I think, in 2008. Uh, we have kind of a civilian who's kind of gone in there uh, as a part of a, a State Department task force, um, and and he's struggling with. This uh, really kind of almost comical set of paradoxes going on in the country. But anyway, there's a scene where in the middle of his just confronting all these paradoxes, he happens to be out at uh, this called smoking pit with a military guy, uh, a sergeant. And uh, suddenly Nathan, our, our young civilian, says, can I ask you something? Why are you here risking your life? He looked at me as though he didn't understand the question. Why are you? He said, 
I don't know, I said. That's a shame, he said. He dropped his cigarette, which was only halfway done, and ground it out. Tell me more about that exchange. I, I, I think I know what Nathan's thinking about, but I'm wondering what set of thoughts or sensibilities you impute to the staff, staff sergeant at that moment. <laughs> well, I think um, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought up those uh, those two polls at the outset. And of mm. course, you know, Nathan, the, the uh, there's an, there's another scene in that. Uh, story where he's talking to an Iraqi, and um, you know the Iraqi makes a comment basically about how screwed up Iraq has has become as a result of some of the policies that the United States pursued. And he says, "Oh, you'll you know when this started, I I opposed the war," mm. um, which you know doesn't mean anything, doesn't let him off the hook in mm. terms of of what his responsibilities are. And there's this. <laughs> You know, that guy's a foreign service officer and he's in this sort of strange place where, you know, uh, he's not uh, a full-throated, hawkish um, person, but he's trying to go into this country and make things better. Um, He's in a position where he actually has the responsibility to try and do that. And he's dealing with the, just the kind of insanity and the chaos uh, of the aftermath of a lot of um of a lot of failures frankly mm-hmm. in the reconstruction effort and trying to see what he can do and with the you know that staff sergeant there's a there's a very particular military ethos and i think when when people sometimes when people talk to me or other uh vets that i know there's a kind of assumption that you know especially if you join around this time, that that means a full-throated endorsement of, you know, every policy uh, of the past decade plus, which is not really true. Um, you know, I have I have a friend who protested the Iraq war and joined the army. Um, you know, I joined the army and uh, or I was uh, commissioned in the Marine Corps in 2005, right? So, you know, there there'd be debates... You know, when I was going over, I remember people debating, you know, getting in these really passionate arguments with me about whether, you know, or not that we should have gone in, which was an interesting historical question and worth talking about, but not of particular pragmatic interest. And so that that staff sergeant, he knows why he's there. Um, and, you know, the, the reasons that military people come up with are diverse. Um, they're serving their country. They're doing what you know, their elected leaders ask of them um, and they're there to protect their guys and serve serve with honor and all the other things that are part of the military ethos. And they're not able to control the broad outlines of policy. Um, and so what they can control, there's a kind of pragmatism in the military, um, which is, I think, very important. And the, for enabling the, them to do their job. I think your stories bring, bring out how important that pragmatism is uh, because, in fact, so many of your characters are really kind of perched on the brink of going a little bit crazy because of what they're doing and or what's happening around them. And, and so, you know, a, a frequent refrain in these stories has to do with, I just shot somebody or maybe I just shot somebody. Uh, what does that mean? You know, did, did I just kill somebody? Uh, and, and a refrain that goes along with this is kind of this country is crazy. I, I don't understand what's happening. And I'm talking more about the, the not the, so much the Nathan kind of story, but the r- real sort of combat oriented stories mm-hmm. where these soldiers 
are really kind of in the moment. And another phrase that comes up a lot, uh, and it comes up in particular in one of the stories uh, where, in fact, a soldier is asking himself those kinds of questions. What comes back to him is, you did your job. Uh, and and right. I, I, maybe that's the pragmatism you're talking about, that ultimately every day you have to do your job. Right. It's a it's a professional army. I mean, war is a lot of things, but in it's, you know, all of these guys have have a job. They have particular missions that they're responsible for and then and and choices that they make within that choices that they then have to live with. And part of, you know, I think the strangeness of it is you have an all volunteer military. You have people who, for the most part, wanted to go over, wanted to do this and oftentimes were very idealistic. And there are, you know, the ways that they feel about their individual deployment and what they did and then how they, you know, reconcile that with what's happened more broadly in, in, in the war and in terms of, you know, American culture and its relationship to war. Um, as I'm reading your stories, I'm also thinking as somebody who was stateside for the entire time, I'll never understand this. This is as close as I've ever felt to understanding it, reading these stories. Um, but for people who didn't experience it, I, I do think, you know, what it was like to be there, what it was like to experience this is just something we're not going to be able to understand. Is there a particular story within this book that if you had to ask a person who hadn't experienced Iraq to read one story or to understand one tale that you're telling, is there a particular one or, or maybe even two that 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 you direct them to <laughs> well there's not and that's that's part of why i wrote the book the way that i did you know it's it's 12 different narrators doing different jobs and and i think it's a, you know one important thing is about the iraq war is you know we're talking about over a decade of policy here and you know if you went to iraq even if you did the same job uh in iraq in in 2006 in Ramadi. That was nothing like Ramadi in 2008. Um, and I think, you know, there's no one experience. And so, uh, you know, I think that people can understand through, uh, you know, if, if you know, you meet a veteran and, and talk to them and have a real engaged com- conversation. I think there is actually a lot that we can learn from each other as we talk about these experiences. And sometimes, you know, an individual might not have a full grasp on what they went through until they talk it out. Um, but I think it, it, it takes time and it's always going to be highly individual, right? Yes. And, and you know, that 2006 to 2008 thing is, is something that surfaces in that same story that I initially referenced. Uh, Nathan at one point is talking to a military guy about just how crazy it is and, and how awful it is and how he just – you know, he doesn't understand how anybody can put up with it. And I, I, I can't remember exactly how they get to this point. But the military guy who's kind of kept up this facade with him uh, through their previous interactions in the story, he kind of lets that facade drop. And he said, oh, no, well, two years ago, you should have seen it. I mean, two years ago, it, right, really it was, was madness. madness. Yeah. Um, this, so that's what you're talking about, right? The the the, the, the spectacle itself, the, the experience itself changed radically year to year to year. Exactly, and and it it was radically different depending on where you were and what you were doing, right? I mean, I you know, there's there's if we had if there was one narrative or one story that allowed us to to wrap the Iraq War up neatly in a bow, you know, I think we'd we'd really like that, but there's not, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's important to resist the urge to to do that, particularly since you know our our involvement with Iraq continues. 
In in writing these stories, obviously you were where you were. You had the experiences you did in the time period that you did. But these stories, uh, these twelve stories, span other time periods as well. Um, did you consciously go around gathering stories from soldiers from other time periods? I mean, how, how did you? Because all of these really do have a feeling of immediacy. I, I feel as the reader as though I really am thrust into a situation that the narrator uh, is experiencing or has experienced. How did you? How did you get that? Well, so, you know, when I was in Iraq, I was a public affairs officer. I ended up spending a lot of time with a lot of different, you know, types of units. Um, and when I came back from Iraq, that's when I started writing the collection. Uh, so I'd, I'd known a lot of people. And then as I was writing, I was continually reading, um, you know, uh, the towards what I wanted to know. And I was also reaching out to other veterans and getting people's stories and, and interviewing people. And just trying to develop a, a thicker knowledge of the subject so that I could explore the, the the issues about the Iraq war that troubled me or confused me or that I thought were worth uh, looking at from, from different angles. It what? took about four and a half years. Were you surprised when you won the National Book Award? And by asking that question, I'm not uh, I'm not calling into question your humility or. Uh, but but um, but but were you? Su- I was I was tremendously surprised. I, I didn't you know I didn't even write a speech until that morning, and when my my uh, sorry well actually it was it wasn't even until the afternoon because my wife asked me if I'd written a speech and I said no I'm not going to win and she said you have to write a speech. Uh, and so I did it. it I, I wrote a speech immediately before the ceremony as a kind of just in case measure. I was I was stunned. Well, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm asking not where are you surprised because you, you know, didn't think you were as good or, or, or anything like that as Anthony Doerr or anybody else. But were you surprised because this is a book about Iraq and Afghanistan? It's a book about something that a lot of readers aren't even that comfortable with wrestling with or or might kind of identify almost as genre fiction, except the genre is actually the recent history of the United States. Did you think that might be a strike against it? I didn't know what the reaction was going to be. I never expected it to have this kind of of response. I mean, just in, it's it's a difficult subject. And I, you know, I knew that if I was going to write about it, I had to I had to try and be as rigorous and honest in writing about it as possible, which meant you know means that there's a lot of sort of hard and and, and unpleasant things in the book that I'm asking the reader to to think about and grapple with. Um, so you know, in that regard, it's been you know, and also you know, people tend to like novels more than short story collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah, it's been very gratifying having a lot of people. Reading the book and responding to it. Um, we're talking to Phil Cly right now. His book is a redeployment, a collection of stories that won the National Book Award. In just a second, we're going to add Frank Rich to this conversation uh, and kind of expand it in a different different um, direction. But before we do that, uh, Phil Cly, uh, one of the themes that does resound through a lot of these stories is um, the how male soldiers define themselves as men, as um, mm-hmm. ways in which sort of the war tests your own ideas about masculinity. And rather than me asking a hyper-focused question about that, maybe you could just re- react to that a little bit. I mean, what, what, what were you trying to get across in some of these stories? Well, you know, the, the Marine Corps is a, a hyper-masculine culture, though— um, of course, there are women who serve, and you know there's one story where there are two marine veterans, neither of whom have been in combat, 
and there's a, a female a soldier who was a lioness, so she was attached to an infantry unit to help search females and um, uh, manage certain cultural sensitivities. And she's been in combat, and, and the narrator of that story feels a certain anxiety about the fact that, you know, there's war is supposed to be this test of manhood, and, and she's done it and he hasn't. Um, and I, you know, I think that... <laughs> Notions of masculinity and, and, and war uh, are certainly something that have, have been bound together for a long time. And yet, you know, the, the, you know, it's a very different culture now within the military and within, you know, broader U.S. society. And, and uh, it's, it's just something that, that I think has to be talked about if you're going to discuss the military and, and the Marines' relationships to women um, – and also some of the kind of toxic masculinity uh, that that uh, is certainly present in in U.S. society, um, but sometimes gets amped up on steroids in a in an all male uh, martial environment uh, is is I don't know something I think is important to talk about, yeah, particularly do, as the military is going through these changes. Right. And we do meet some of those men uh, in this book. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, Phil Clyer is with us uh, for the whole time. Uh, Frank Rich is going to join us here in this next segment. If you want to join us too, our number is 860-275-7266. We're talking about the story of Iraq, not that that's just one story. All right, we're back. We're talking about Iraq. We've been talking to and will continue talking to Phil Cly. Uh, his book is a Redeployment, uh, the winner of the 2014 National Book Award. And um, also, uh, he's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, serving 13 months in Iraq. If you haven't read these stories, uh, you have to read these stories. Uh, joining us now also is Frank Rich, a writer-at-large at New York Magazine and the executive producer of Veep, whose fourth season debuts on HBO April 12th. Uh, most pertinently, although he's written a lot of columns, both for the New York Times uh, and for New York magazine about Iraq, but also, very pertinently, the author of The Greatest Story Ever Sold, The Decline and Fall of Truth in Bush's America. So uh, uh, you're both here together. I look forward to having the two of you talk to one another. I'm going to start with a question about sort of history. And um, uh, Frank, I guess I'll, I'll begin with you. Uh, I walked out of Clint Eastwood's movie American Sniper, and, and I had a lot of thoughts about whether or not it really told an Iraq story that I recognized. I, I thought, one of the things that really fascinated me was so much of it took place in Fallujah. And mm -hmm. I was kind of waiting for, as the credits rolled up, something saying Fallujah has been held by ISIS for the last year. Of course, that wouldn't make any sense to put it in the credits because this film will be showed for, for decades to come. But walking out of that movie, you know, I, I don't know whether you would draw any particular c conclusion about Fallujah, but I can't imagine that somebody who didn't read about this regularly w would, would expect to, to find out that Fallujah right now is held by the people we're the most uh, afraid of and appalled by in, in all the Middle East. I don't know, maybe you can just sort of comment on, on how, how well we've stayed with this story. Well, I, don't, I, I, I think that, yes, as you, as you said, Colin, the people who follow it and read about it, uh, let alone people who were there, um, would ask such questions after, you know, American Sniper or any, or any movie that, that sort of left the groundhog day aspect of the story out of it but i th but i think for the for a general public uh that 
turned on the war, uh, that was not, for the most part, actively in, engaged uh, in the war because so few Americans had friends and relatives who served. Um, it all sort of blurs together as just kind of a never-ending uh, uh, quagmire that they want to uh, wash their hands of, except you know they can look at this, this particular story and say, well, if they feel this way, he's a hero or he did his duty. At least, you know, America had some, you know, some boots on the ground that did some good. But to me, a, a more interesting or a more revealing aspect of the film may be how the Iraqis in general are presented. They're just sort of indistinguishable bad guys, basically. And so it blurs all the history that I'm not sure that Americans ever learned in the first place about Iraq. And, you know, in some ways they're like, uh, the Iraqis are, are like the Vietnam, Vietnamese and, you know, the Green Beret, the, the John Wayne movie. Um, they're just sort of extras that uh, are menacing the other and that uh, screwed up America by us trying to help them and getting and getting nothing out of it. I mean, and this is not my view, but I'm just necessarily, but I'm just saying that's what I think the way it plays. Well, yeah, Phil Clay, I, I want to come back to that in a second, because in some of your stories, the Iraqis are Haji, you know, which is sort of what Charlie was in, in, in Vietnam, and they really don't have a lot of identity. In some of your stories, uh, they're really fully blown and finely drawn characters. But if, just, to go, just to come back to that original question uh, about historical memory, as you talk to people about Iraq, does the common person's understanding, I don't know if the common person exists, but do people's understandings extend all the way to 2015? I mean, is there it's some way in which their Iraq attention span switches off at a certain point? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the there are debates that people are more comfortable uh, having, you know, the, the, you know, should we have gone in in 2003 is, is a much easier uh, debate to have than than what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's been the case for a while. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, that one of the things that, you know, whether people are on the left or the right, the the. Um, it's it's very easy to want to switch the frame of 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 the discussion from something which we have an active part in which we have a responsibility toward as as american citizens uh towards you know a, a sort of more simplified view of of what that war was and and how to think about it and also who to blame for it um it, it just one of the characters in the story that we seem to keep talking about here um uh, money is a weapon system, or I mean, I mean the exact uh, title of it. But there's this guy called the professor, who's a translator, uh, and he's um, uh, of pretty clearly of Sunni background, and he has formerly been a professor. And he he kind of spits these things out uh, at at some of the other characters, and he he does say at one point, "You people have have served this country up like a cake for the Iraqis to eat, or or or, or something like that." You, right? You've baked Iraq like a cake and given it to Iran to eat. Right. <laughs> Which is is not my I, so is a politician actually Iraqi politician said that, and uh, I said I'm going to put that in in a story. Mm. You know that character he's he's a he's a guy who when the Americans first came in he was one of those Iraqis who was very hopeful, mm. right? And you know at that point in 2008 he's been working with the Americans for a long time as a translator, and that. 
hope has just kind of curdled in him and he's sort of at the end of his rope in dealing with um in dealing with the the you know the whole you know <laughs> in dealing with the, the reconstruction effort and also just sort of seeing the way that 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 his country is is going um and so he's he's willing because uh he's kind of fed up he's willing to tell the narrator of that story thinks that a lot of other Iraqis wouldn't say directly to an American that they're working with. You know, I mean, and I, Frank, I don't mean to beat to death this whole idea of American sure. ignorance about this question, but, you know, at the beginning, uh, at the outbreak of the war, uh, going in, is either in late 2002 or 2003, it kind of surfaced uh, anecdotally that maybe President Bush didn't understand that there were Sunni and Shia uh, and, and what the difference between the two of them are. Yes, that was actually reported by um, George Packer in a... Uh, in a story in the New York Times uh, magazine at that time. And, and you know, I mean, I, that seemed profoundly ignorant, but also, you know, for a president anyway, but also probably pretty typical of Americans at that point. I mean, there wasn't a lot of sophistication uh, about that situation. And I guess I would wonder if there still is any sophistication about this issue, whether this is sort of something which, as you suggest, because not that many people necessarily know very well, people who served over there, uh, and, and nobody's, it's just not required reading somehow. I mean, understanding this from beginning to end is well, not required reading. Right. Well, I think, you know, it, first of all, it's, it's, it's more complicated then the also simplistic view of Americans during the Vietnam era of the domino theory was, you know, it was the commies versus America. This is much, much more complicated. And I would argue that not only do Americans, and I'm not necessarily faulting them, uh, they have other things to do, and the whole way this war has been managed uh, encouraged this, but I expect most Americans do not know the difference between the Sunni and the Shia. They do not, cannot distinguish between the original al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, ISIS, um, they don't may not understand the relationship of uh, Iraq to Iran that uh, uh, Phil just, you know, you just talked about and uh, epitomized in that, in that line about the, the cake being turned over to Iran. I'm not sure that people really do understand the politics. And I think one reason why American sniper plays well for those who plays well beyond the emotion and the character and the specific story is it doesn't ask the audience to know any of that you don't need it to 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 figure out what's going on in that movie and that's why to get back to your original question there's no coda at the end explaining that because because frankly i think if it was there people would a lot of people not maybe people listening to your program and not us but a lot of people would say what huh you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it would really land. Um, we've got a call from Laura in East Hampton. She's going to bring up something I wanted to bring up anyway, so uh, here we go. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? Good. First, I wanted to thank Phil for such an incredible book. Um, I did, as you said, Colin, I read this first story before I went to bed one night, and uh, then I got up the next morning and sat down and read it, the entire book and mm. didn't get up until I was finished. It was fantastic, so thank you. Um, Thank you. My question is regarding, I just read recently, I believe it was in the New York Times, but I might be, be mistaken. It was. It was. Okay, thank you. <laughs> About um, my inclination has been when I see a uh, serviceman or woman or a police or a, a, a fire um, uh, person as well to say thank you for your service. And um, having just read recently about that's not necessarily what a returning soldier wants to hear. 
I guess I would ask Phil, is it? Should I stop saying that? What should we say? I feel like it's rude to not say something, to at least acknowledge that the rest of us have no idea what you've gone through, and here we are living our happy lives while you're over there fighting in, in conditions I can't even imagine and how you come home and are expected to live a normal life. I think that article so I, um, that that article resonated with a lot of people, Laura. Thank you so much for that phone call, and I know that both of our guests want to talk about it. But Phil, uh, when you go first, I'm sure you read the same article uh, in which yes. uh, uh, a serviceman was basically saying, you know, it's almost like a button people push. Uh, that you know, you push the button and and the, the the noise comes out and and you move on. So so talk about that. I, you know, I think it's more about the intent. Um, behind saying it than, than, than necessarily, um, you know, the, the individual phrase that's said, right? A, a lot of vets, vets talk about this all the time. And, you know, in, in, in the book, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, a character who, you know, is talking to a sympathetic civilian and, and the guy says, well, what, you know, what should I say? And it's, he's like, I reserve the right to be mad at you no matter what you say. <laughs> I think um, it, it, I've always appreciated it. Personally, and I know a lot of vets uh, who appreciate it, and I know some vets who uh, are frustrated by it. I think what the worry is, is, you know, our generation, we didn't come back to the sort of reception the Vietnam generation came back to, um, which is a positive development. But we came back instead to often a lot of indifference. And, you know... We talked earlier about it's a professional military. These are people doing a job. The job matters to them, and they never want to feel like they're being patronized in some way or that um, or that, that phrase is all there is right. behind you know the individual citizen's relationship to the, the wars and, and, and what's going on. If you've got a, a extremely engaged civilian who takes this seriously and says that to a vet and it's clear that 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 matters to them and that they are engaged i think most people would appreciate that um but again it's it's you know the sort of the divide that exists currently between the small percentage of people who serve and the civilian population it's not something that can be papered over with with a phrase so i think it's the intent behind it and also what follows whether you know, there's a broader conversation about war to be had and about people's experience or whether it's just something that you say and then feel good about and go on with your day. Frank Rich, uh, you know, Phil talks about how the, the Iraq veterans didn't come back to what Vietnam veterans came back to. But it does seem, and it was seemed in that article, is though what they came back to is a kind of kabuki that we've learned, you know, that there's some things that you can say uh, almost ritualistically and then move on. Well, exactly. I think, you know, the word indifference is, is exactly right. It, it is, and that is an improvement over, you know, active hostility and, and all the tumult that attended the uh, Vietnam War and the end of it. Um, but I do think uh, you're exactly, you know, this, this indifference and the people who do use this phrase in not a great way, use it as just sort of a patronizing pat in the head, reflects a problem that's that's baked into the, the whole history of the war, which is the American public was told it could be done, the war could be done on the cheap, that it would be done, it would be over, you know, by Christmas, that 
the results would be unambiguous, and there would be no tax taxes to have to be paid for it. It would co- it would cost nothing in treasure or in in blood, and you know it'd be like you know the Falklands War or something. That that's really the impression that was given by the political leadership uh, of America. So it turned out to be wrong, and there was and yet Americans who were not serving really didn't have to make any sacrifice. They never did have to uh, pay taxes. They never, certainly they obviously were never subjected to a a draft um, uh, for a long time. The fact that, you know, the the casualties of the, uh, the fatalities of the war coming back in caskets to America was, was shrouded in the darkness of night. So there's been a reckoning, at least psychologically, I think, among many Americans that, oh, we did nothing, and these people uh, who served for us often paid an incredibly uh, stiff price as survivors, let alone those who paid the ultimate price. And so there's a kind of, you know, ex post facto, a bit of guilt, and a good way, I guess, to expiate it is to just say thank you for your service rather than have that longer discussion uh, about the war with the people who served in it, let alone actually do something to ameliorate the lives and welfare of uh, of those who, who served and come back to, as we know, you know, in, in, in different or worse uh, health care and everything else. And, and, and so... I think it's it's an easy, you know, that's what it's about. I think it's pretty simple. Um, Phil, you uh, talked earlier on the show about going to war, essentially, in 2005. Uh, and, and things were very different then. I mean, from 2002 to 2003, the run-up, the ramp-up. Uh, we talked at the beginning of the show, 72% of the American public uh, uh, supported this effort. Uh, the press was very solidly behind it. Uh, Democrats in the Senate, uh, people like mm-hmm. Chris Dodd and Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Chuck Schumer all voted for the resolution. Um, but I went back and read a Frank Rich column from 2005 when really a lot of that was already beginning to shred. You know, the war hadn't been over by Christmas. It was going on a lot longer. And there was this kind of almost collective attention fatigue at minimum, if not open hostility towards the war um, among some of the people who initially supported it. What was that like for you to be? It wasn't like going in in 2003, I assume. It was a very different vibe. It was it was different. So that's when I was commissioned and I ended up going to Iraq in 2007. Um, But yeah, that was the period when uh, the American public started really started to shift. Um, you know, Donald Rumsfeld was still Secretary of Defense, so by that point, it was it was pretty clear um, that he was very bad at his job. Um, and so, I mean, in in a strange way, it. It sort of it clarified my my role in this, right? You know, I was there was a a, a mess essentially. Um, there was a lot of chaos that we'd unleashed, and ideally, in my mind, the job was okay. What can we do? Um, you know, the the fact that um, we'd gone in was not something that we could change. So, what do we do now? Um, and that goes back to that the kind of pragmatism of the military that I talked about before. Um, 
And that was, I think, uh, something a lot of people felt. And the odd thing about my term of service was I, I was through the surge. So I was in Ambar province from January 2007 to February 2008. So when I left, uh, you know, I left with a lot of people feeling very good about what we'd done because we'd gone into a extremely violent province. And then the violence level had just been dramatically reduced. And then, of course, all those people have now watched as as the situation has unraveled again and, and had to come to terms with that. Um, Frank Rich, in your book, you're very tough on the press, justifiably very tough on the press. And, you know, watching what Brian Williams went through o- over the last uh, month and a half, uh, I find myself thinking, wow, if Brian Williams is the person who's crucified among m- members of the press because he told this lie. I mean, it was a lie. It was wrong. I'm not excusing it. But but when I think of the level of culpability, I mean, there are obviously some people in the press did some great things. And we have mentioned names like George Packer and Dexter Filkins and people who just did incredible reporting uh, about Iraq. But um, I, there, there's some way, some way in which the Brian Williams being this kind of sacrificial lamb for the sins of the press that really stretch back to 2002 seems kind See, I, of paradoxical. Carl, I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, here's why. Um, I think I, 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 you know, I've heard this equation a lot, and it's and it's been a recurring theme of, of John Stewart on the Daily Show and others. But here's the problem with it. First of all, Brian Williams, I hate to say it, was part of the press that screwed up originally, mm-hmm. uh, and and. He he was an anchor on MSNBC, which had a somewhat a, a different identity than it does now. It wasn't you know a liberal network; it was more like CNN. He 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 and NBC in general, and all three networks, uh, legitimate networks or legitimate news uh, organizations among the networks, and CNN, none of them questioned the case for war. Unlike the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post, which were also guilty, although not as guilty. There were some reporters in both papers and stories that were buried that did question the rationale for war and the WMD argument. They never went back and and looked at what they did. You know, there was huge mea culpa at the Times. A lot of people basically were fired. The, the, the whole management structure of the paper changed. Judith Miller wrote some of the most egregious stories left. Uh, that never happened uh, at NBC, and NBC was one of the biggest defenders. It was where people, unlike ABC, where Peter Jennings was skeptical, in NBC people wore flag lapel pins. They were very, very uh, gung-ho about the war, and no one questioned anything. And so maybe Brian Williams' uh, uh, inflation of uh, it wasn't just his war experience, as we know now, as other stories too. Maybe that's bearing some of the burden but that doesn't clear him because he was he was part of the the problem to begin with, and um, I think that James Fallows of the Atlantic wrote an excellent uh, blog post, I guess it was, about uh, another aspect of the Brian Williams thing, what it's carrying what it's carrying the burden of, and you see this a little bit perhaps with this Bill O'Reilly nonsense too, a kind of as he put it, a chicken hawk situation where a lot of people who uh, haven't served in the, you know haven't served in the armed forces and who cheerled this war uh feel guilty and that drives them to in an extreme case like Brian Williams stealing valor taking taking uh some heroic credit for daring do in the war that to me is a much more interesting uh interpretation of what of what's going on 
with Williams and and the story more than and you know I I, I think that people do know that I, I wish people did remember more when this was of course the subject of my book just how badly uh, news organizations uh, not all of them but most of them behaved in that crucial early period. Um, Phil Cly, you know, given how bad Americans, I think, are uh, at absorbing this story, and, and particularly this story as it stretches from the earliest stirrings in 2002 or earlier to the present, you know, you, you kind of want, I mean, you know, I could drag out the Santayana quote about those who don't learn from history or condemn to repeat it, but you, you kind of want any nation, any society, maybe any world to, to learn from what happens. And I, I'm wondering whether you think that we're capable of learning anything from Iraq if, in fact, maybe we don't even understand, as a country, don't even really understand very well what happened from year to year. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope so. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book um, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm very pleased about the 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 continuing continuing to outpouring of books about about Iraq. I think, you know, it's it's. Um, it would be a bit much to expect um, uh, every year, you know, your average American to have a, a complex and nuanced understanding of the various um, ethnic and religious rivalries and, and complications in, in Iraq and how those relate to our policy over the past, you know, decade plus. It's a, it's a complicated and hard subject. I, I do think that we need to be one um i think we need to have a you know a more nuanced understanding of it i think we need to accept the fact that you know we have a responsibility towards what happened i think we need to be more critical of you know the stories about war and i think we need to hold hold people accountable um in you know it's it's uh you know the Things that Brian Williams said about what where he was and what he did, those are not my – it's not on my top ten list of, of things that frustrate me most about the Iraq war. Um, you know, there's – there's uh, I think, you know, what, what uh, Frank Rich was met, uh, mentioning, you know, this serves as a place where, you know, we can clearly point to somebody. Um, and, and in a certain way, it's, it's, it's a much easier conversation to, <laughs> to have. Um, than I think some of the ones that we need to be having. Um, Frank Rich, uh, we're going to about to wrap up this segment, and I know you're going to go, and Phil and I are going to come back for a final segment. But sure. you know, I mean, going as we during the run up, and particularly before uh, Colin Powell kind of got sidetracked into that UN speech, he articulated this thing called the pottery barn principle, which is not mm-hmm. I don't know, his idea, but it's you break it, you bought it; you break it, you own it. Um, and and I think that's a pretty it's a relatively easy thing to understand. And I was wondering, you know, just to follow up on my question to Phil, whether there's some version of that now, maybe not that principle, but you in one of your New York Magazine pieces quoted Mark Danner. I think he was re- maybe reviewing the Rumsfeld movie. This feels like Russian dolls nesting towards each other. But right. um, but he said something to the effect that, you know, this one of the things that happened was that this this somewhat fragile and, and pretty violent uh, balance between Sunni and Shia. It wasn't really in balance, but um, it was disrupted enough so that what's happened has kind of spilled all over the Arabian Peninsula and into the subcontinent. That, that I, wonder if what, I wonder if there's a lesson that we can learn that something like, just because you see an ugly situation like Saddam Hussein, uh, that doesn't mean you can replace it with a vastly better situation. 
Well, yeah, I, th- I, I would hope that would be a lesson learned. And certainly that's something that to some extent I think President Obama has been trying to articulate as a uh, a lesson learned from the failure of, uh, I guess, what is known as the Bush Doctrine, you know, the, the, that we could just sort of go in there and, you know, from the green zone, erect a democracy and, and override, you know, centuries of history. Um, but I don't, again, I and I, and I don't say this to, to criticize the American public, I'm not sure we're there yet. I'm not, maybe we are, I think it's, but I think it's a little bit a little more generalized than that. I think it's more uh, we don't want to be involved in anything uh, unless we see Americans being beheaded, and then we want to take take those people out, pin, somehow pinpoint them, take them out, ideally, uh, you know, from the air or with drones, better still, um, and have a surgical procedure where we we stop, you know, the bad guys. So in some ways. People still sort of believe in what George Bush promised would happen. You know, we'd get the bad guys out dead or alive, and and then everything else would be fine. So I don't I don't know if people are I don't know if people are thinking in that way about the history of of the region and about how America really can't change that, no matter what our goodwill or what what the hell we do. I just don't know. I don't know if people are thinking that far. Do you do you? Do you think they are? No, I think uh, I, I think pretty much. I think you've articulated it pretty well. Is that I mean the 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 rationale in 2002 to 2003 for going in was there was an imminent threat towards us, and now that people don't perceive an, an imminent threat, I think they've in large part kind of stopped thinking about this. Um, Frank Rich, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Great talking to you both as always. Uh, we want to talk more to Phil Clyer. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We won't have much time, but I have at least one more question that I want to ask him. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Loro. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Valerie Plain. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the Faith Middleton Show staff's yellow cake uranium recipes, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to skin microbes. Now, back to Colin. I love that there was just a promo for Lysistrata, which is, of course, one of the first anti-war plays and very much about masculinity in some of the ways that Phil was talking about. Phil Klei is with us. We really only have time, alas, for one more question. The book, by the way, is Redeployment. It won the National Book Award. You know, need to need to tell you it is one of, an incredible critical success and just a great read, too, these 12 stories. Um, this may have already happened, Phil, but if it hasn't, I bet you it will someday. You'll be in some Midwestern city doing a, a reading and signing uh, and some young guy will come up to you and say, you know, I just graduated from high school um, and I read your book and I can't and I was thinking about enlisting and I can't really tell re- reading redeployment whether Phil Cly would want me to enlist or not. What would you say to that guy? Um, I mean, I wouldn't tell him no. Mm-hmm. I am glad that I served in the military. Uh, and I think most veterans, you know, feel feel that way when they when they do polls of veterans. They, um, you know, a lot of veterans are are skeptical or angry about some of the the policies of the past, you know, ten years or so. But um, but overwhelmingly, they say that they would do it again. Um, 
so you know i think that there's there's a lot that you can get out of the military i think that i got a lot out of it but it's a it's a serious it's a serious decision and i think the 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 thing to consider is i mean you know there are the obvious risks that are a part of it but also thinking about the fact that if you sign the military you're signing up you know for at least 4 years uh giving your life to your country to do whatever they would have you do and you don't actually control that right mm-hmm. um you know uh, there's one unit recently where uh they were deciding between two deployments they were either going to go to Africa to help out with Ebola or they're going to go to Guantanamo Bay you know could have been either one um but when those guys get back they'll get very different receptions um based on what type of service right um and so just think very seriously about whether you're willing to um to make that decision for your country and then and then and and you know be willing to accept the fact that you can't control it and that historically uh America is not always um used its soldiers' lives as wisely as it could have. Uh, that's a great answer. Uh, we're going to have to stop there. I dare not ask you another question. But uh, Phil Klaas, so great to talk to you, a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, serving 13 months in Iraq, uh, the author of Redeployment, the 2014 National Book Award winner. Thanks also to Frank Rich, uh, writer-at-large for New York Magazine. Thanks also to Betsy Kaplan, who pulled this show together. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with the story of the micro. It's all the microbes in your body, but especially the ones that live on your skin. They have stories to tell, and they may have other things to contribute to us if we use the science around them wisely. So uh, join us for that. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back tomorrow.